drove himself to the hospital um, with chest pains. And they went to the hospital that we were born in, which um, back in its day, it was a much bigger hospital. But obviously through the years, it, it can only really deal with emergency situations. And then depending on the emergency, they, they have to send them down to Bangor, Maine, which is where a, a regional hospital is. And so they stabilized him last night. And uh, the... the uh, the tests that they could run for him, which are your blood tests and the EKG, everything looked pretty good for him. And uh, they took him down to Bangor today, and uh, they, were going to, they scheduled him for a heart catheterization tomorrow. And uh, at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, there was a cancellation. And so they took Ken in, and um, they did a catheterization at the very end. Everything looked really good, and it was kind of baffling the doctors, but right at the very end, they said, we see something. They went back and looked at it at a different angle, and there was just a, a minor artery that was 90% uh, blocked, just a minor one. They said, you know, it could have caused a heart attack, but you came in early enough. They, they um, put a stent in, and uh, the prayer that I prayed last night, it was... It was the only thing I prayed is, Lord, please do not let there be any damage to his heart. And uh, I, I just heard him. <laughs> I just heard right before I came out that there is no damage. <coughs> there is no damage. <laughs> you know. so, so, uh, so no damage done to his heart. And uh, by the grace of God, tomorrow they're going to release him. You know, he's going to have to do some things, lifestyle changes and stuff. But uh, I'm just thankful. You know, it's, it's hard. I've never begrudged the Lord for, for the call of God. But boy, I'm going to tell you, when, when you are 800 miles away from home, it can be tough, you know, walking through this. And so if you just keep, uh, you know, especially my mom and my dad, you know, this is tough for them too, but just keep them all in prayer. And uh, for those of you that know, Kent got a little bit later start in, in uh, his marital journey and his parental journey as well. So his children are small. And uh, I think his oldest is just in eighth grade. And then they go down from there. So I know that that weighs heavy upon him as well. So if you could just keep them all in prayer and keep us in prayer. Um, many of you know my grandmother is 94 years old. She just recently went into the uh, nursing home. And uh, I don't like to talk about these things all the time. But, but you're my family. And so I have to share these things. But my my greatest concern of seeing my grandmother go into the the nursing home was that um, she would just give up and that appears to be what's happening her vital signs are strong but she just feels like she has nothing to live for my grandmother's a strong woman of faith but it's just depressing for her and um, so I just have felt and our plan right now is to be here on Sunday to minister the word and then I think that uh, right after church we're going to get in the car and we're going to just drive up not for the whole week we're just going to stay up for a few days just to see my brother to see my my grandmother and and just um, you know when you're the oldest there's something about being the oldest that you're just kind of the stabilizer of the family. And so I just feel like I need to go up there. And you've always been gracious to us when we've had to be home with our family. So just keep us in your prayer through this time. I would greatly appreciate it. Now, with that out of the way, I will also tell you that um, we are going to start our series on the book of Revelation. So you can um, you know, get this out. We're not going to start next week. But we are going to start the week after. So September the 28th, we're going to begin our study on the book of Revelation. And uh, I'm sorry I kind of kept you in the dark for as long as I did, but that is just an ominous task. And it was just this week as I started plowing through notes, I'm like, what have I done? Um, there's 22 chapters in Revelation, and there is a lot of material. And not just the prophetic. The prophetic is one thing. But just the theology alone that is in the book of Revelation and uh, the, the, the Christology and the angelology and soteriology, all of these theological things that are there in the book of Revelation. And we're going to 
try to unpack it all. So you just need to understand, if you've never really been through one of my book studies, it would not surprise me at all if we are still working through it this time next year. It's just that kind of material. But hey, we're not in any hurry. We're just going to let God speak to us week after week. So let everybody know, September the 28th, we'll begin the book of Revelation. But tonight, I want to close a thought that I've been working with you over the last few weeks um, concerning conflict resolution. And uh, it's not typically something that I would walk through, but I really felt compelled in my heart a few weeks ago to spend some time just talking about how we as believers resolve conflict. Because it's something that all of us deal with from time to time, and some maybe even more than others. But all of us certainly will have to deal with conflict at various times in our life. And I want to remind you that um, what compelled me to talk about these things was not because I'm hearing that there's conflict within the church, but as I have been doing my counseling, as I have been talking to people behind the scenes, I'm just hearing a lot of men and women experiencing conflict. Uh, Conflict within their marriage, conflict with their family, conflict at work, conflict among friends, and um, just really do not know how to navigate through those times of of, uh, great conflict in their lives. And uh, just felt like I needed to take some time to work through that because, as we have said, All of us will experience conflict, and we can have conflict with God. It sounds strange, but we can. I can't be the only believer that has sat down and read the Word of God and thought, man, what God wants me to do conflicts (laughs) with what I want to do. And so we can be in conflict with God. We can be in conflict with one another. We can be in conflict with ourselves, an internal conflict, because again, I cannot be the only one that has been tore and conflicted over what I wanted to do and what I knew I ought to do. And it doesn't matter what conflict that I am experiencing, there is a biblical way to handle that conflict. There is a godly way. Now there's a worldly way as well. And many of us, whether we realize it or not, we do tend to move in that direction rather than in a godly way. And the world always deals with conflict on a superficial level. It's all about behavior modification. I just need to change my behavior. And you may say, well, don't we want to change behavior? Yes, but we go about it a totally different way. The world says, do these things. These are some exercises, and these are some practices, and this is what you need to do. And it's all about changing, modifying your behavior. So the focus is on the behavior. That's works Based, It flies right in the face of what gospel salvation is all about because we're a walk of faith, not a, work, uh, uh, a walk of works. God says, yes, I want to change your behavior, but I'm going to change your behavior by getting to your heart. It is a heart issue. That's why the Bible says that we are to guard our hearts with all diligence because out of our hearts springs all of the issues of life. We act, we think, and we speak according to what is in our heart. You know, again, you've heard me say this in the past, you know, whenever you do something or you say something or you think something and you're tempted to say, where's that coming from? Remind yourself, it's coming from my heart. Turn to your neighbor and tell them, it's coming from my heart. You know, through the years, you've learned how to suppress it Because you know that you're not going to get that far if you keep acting that way and behaving that way, but you never dealt with the root issue. It was in your heart. And so God says, yeah, we're going to work on your behavior, but we're not going to work on the behavior. We're going to transform the heart by the same Spirit that raised my son from the dead. And by your heart being changed, then your behavior changes. Then your attitude changes. Then your mind changes. God deals with the heart. Can you say amen to that? And so that's how we as believers attack it. We don't focus on our behavior. We get alone with God and say, Lord, change my heart. Work within me. Revolutionize my life through the transformation of my heart in Jesus' name. So 
we have been working through this um, by looking at it through the lens of James chapter 4. James, as many of you know, I call him the half-brother of Jesus. Same mother, different dads, okay? But he grew up with Jesus. And uh, he wrote this incredible letter, James, and he actually in chapter 4 deals with conflict resolution. It's right here again, James chapter 4, beginning with verse number 1. We read along with me, where do wars and fights come from among you do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members you lust and do not have you murder and covet and understand murder is not just the physical act of murder remember Jesus said if you hate someone you've already committed murder in your heart so that it would extend to resentment it would extend to bitterness um, covetousness he says you murder and you covet and you cannot obtain you fight and you war yet you do not have because you do not ask you ask and you do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures adulterers and adulteresses do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God or do you think that the scripture says in vain the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealousy and in what he's saying there is that the spirit of God within our hearts convicts us whenever we go astray whenever we seek to fulfill our desires apart from the living God he he convicts us because he's a jealous God he's not sharing you with anyone else it is God and God alone we are I said it to you last week our hearts are too small to love two at the same time Jesus is the one that said that you cannot love God and money at the same time you will love one and hate the other you'll love that one and hate the other but you cannot serve both at the same time God is a jealous God he will not share you with anyone and when he senses us um, going to the world the spirit convicts us of that in Jesus name so from this portion of scripture that we've read so far we've already started looking kind of at the anatomy if you will of conflict we've looked so far at the root of all conflict the root cause of all conflict it's right there where do wars and fights come from among you he says where do they all stem from where do they originate where do they all begin do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members James says you are the problem turn to your neighbor and tell him you are the problem Amen. and duck before they take a swing at you okay but but you know some of you've been waiting to say that all day long you're the problem okay but that's what James says James says you're the problem now is he ignoring the fact that there's somebody else involved, not at all. But what he's saying is, you better take care of the beam that is in your eye before you start digging around for the speck of dust in somebody else's. So what he's saying is, rather than focusing all of this energy on trying to change the other person that you're in conflict with, why don't you start by dealing with your own heart? Because ultimately, you can't change anybody else, but you can allow God to change your heart. And so he says, it starts with you. And what it is, is that you've got this, this thing in you that you need satisfied. You need it to be uh, taken care of. It's what pleases you, whatever that is. And it can be anything, but it might just be that you have this desire to always be right. Some of you, it's the desire to always have the last word. For some of you, it's just, it always has to be your way. And so, literally, that is what pleases you, and that alone is what keeps the conflict going. And so, he just says, it, it's, it's this desire inside of you that you just will not let go of. That's the root. It starts with each and every one of us. So then we looked at the result. What is the result of conflict? 
in our own lives. He goes on, you lust and you do not have. You murder and you covet and you cannot obtain. You fight and you war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. And even when you do ask, you don't receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasure. He says the result of your conflict is just you always are frustrated. You're never satisfied was thinking about it, um, it, you know, even this afternoon, just as I was going through these notes, just the men and women through the years that I have, that I've encountered, that there's always drama. There's always conflict. There, there's always a struggle. And, and, it, and every time that I've met somebody like that, it's never enough. They're never satisfied. They're never content. And so they're always in conflict because they've never learned how to just trust that what God has given them today is sufficient. They've never learned that. And so they just constantly need more and they're never satisfied. He says you lust, but you don't have. So what do you do? You hate your brother. You're covetous toward him. You, you, you chew him out. You, you know, you, you just you backbite them. You fight and you war with one another, but you have nothing to show for it. You're never satisfied. And he says, so the result of your conflict is you're just never going to be satisfied. At some point, you've got to rest in the Lord and say what he's provided for me today is sufficient for this day. Who does that sound like? Jesus said, don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow's got enough to worry about. Just take it day by day and know that what you have need of today, God's going to provide. In fact, he didn't even tell you to pray for tomorrow. He says, give us this day our daily bread. And so start by just living day by day and believing that what he provides today is sufficient to get you through this day. Tomorrow, his grace will be renewed in Jesus' name. So the result of this conflict is just never being satisfied. And then we looked at the reality of conflict. Because it's very easy for us to look at conflict and say, you know, it's, it's conflict, but it's not the end of the world. <laughs> James says, adulterers and adulteresses. He says it's spiritual adultery. And worse than that, he says, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the Scripture says in vain, the Spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? That's an amazing statement. He says, you think it's just fighting. You think it's just conflict. You think it's just a verbal assault. That's literally what it means there. You just think it's this war of words. You just think that you're screaming and yelling at each other and, and just constantly butting heads. And you think it's no big deal. But I'm telling you the reality. It's adultery. It is no different than you sleeping with someone who is not your husband or not your wife. Because what you're saying at a heart's level is, God, what you've provided is not enough for me. And I don't trust that what I need of, what I have need of, you are able to take care of. So I have to go outside of my relationship with you and seek it somewhere else. He says, you are making yourself a friend of the world. And in making yourself a friend of the world, you've actually made yourself my enemy. The enemy of God. Wow. Like, this is nothing to mess around with. He says, you just look at it and say, no, I'm just fighting. I mean, we're, just, we're just having a confrontation. And God says, yeah, but the reason is because you're not satisfied and content in your relationship with the Lord. And so you're going other places for it. And that's why there's all this tension inside of you. And whoever wants to be a friend of this world makes himself an enemy of God. And that could just be having your appetites for the things that this world has an appetite for. I'm, just think about it. Could there be any more frightening concept in the Bible than actually making yourself an enemy of God? Like, just think about that. That by simply having a thirst for the world, I'm, I'm making myself an enemy of God. 
First scripture came to my mind. Isaiah 63, verse 10. But they rebelled and grieved His Holy Spirit, so He turned Himself against them as an enemy and fought against them. Now somebody's going to say, well, thank God, Pastor Kurt, that's the Old Testament. God would never do that today. To which I would just say, so what? Like, so what that it's in the Old Testament? Are you telling me that the character of God changed from the Old to the New Testament? Besides that, we're told in Ephesians 4 and verse 13, not to grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So we know that we can grieve the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. And we just read in our text that we can make ourselves an enemy of God. So, if Israel grieved the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament and became an enemy of God and He fought against them, if in the New Testament we can grieve the Holy Spirit and become an enemy, why would I think that He won't become an enemy against me, that he will come against me. Some of us are very, we're nervous about it. Wait a minute, God's not against me, he's for me. Five times, folks. I believe it's five. In Revelation 2 and Revelation 3, what do you hear Jesus say? He says, he says I know your works and I see your deeds. Nevertheless, I have this against you. We could still grieve the Holy Spirit and He can be against us. And, and we're going to flesh that out a little bit later in this message, but just remember very quickly the warning that's in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 when you take the communion in an unworthy manner. Remember what he says? He said, for if we had judged ourselves, then we would not be judged. And even when we are judged, we are being chastened of the Lord so we would not be judged with the rest of the world. So what he's saying is that there is a redemptive purpose when he stands in opposition to his children. It's not to destroy you. It is a redemptive purpose. And, and again, we're going to get into it in a moment, but you need to thank God that there have been times that he's withstood you. Come on. <laughs> there, there, there are times, and you may not even know it all until you get to heaven, but there are, there are times when God resisted you and you didn't realize it, but he saved you by resisting what your plans were in Jesus' name. Okay. So then, at the very end last week, I shared with you the remedy. And we didn't really even comment on it, but the remedy of conflict. How, how do we remedy these conflicts? It's the very first part of verse number six, but he gives more grace. How many of you love that? That he gives more grace. Now, what he's telling us is the remedy is the grace of God. Now, I'm not going to take a lot of time here because if you were here on Sunday morning, we talked extensively about the grace of God, the difference between the mercy of God and the grace of God. So I'm not going to go into a lot of detail with it, but again, let me remind you that the primary thrust behind the grace of God because you always hear people say the grace of God is God's riches at Christ's expense. And, you know, we can get into those, those things. But the real driving force behind grace is divine influence. It is the divine power of God working upon the heart of man to empower him to live as God has called him to live, to obey in the way that God has called him to obey. You and I can do nothing apart from the grace of God. You know, when I read the Bible, I am reminded of one thing. I can't live this way. It's impossible for me to live this way. Anybody else feel that way? When I read the Bible, I'm like, oh, I can't do this. That's the point. You can't do it. But by His grace, you can do all things in Jesus' name. And so it's by the grace of God. And how do we resolve conflict as believers? By the grace of God and only by the grace of Almighty God. 
And that's the only way that we're actually going to overcome. And so even though we are in conflict, even though uh, this conflict all stems from our selfishness and pride, and even though it has brought tension in our relationships with others and our Father bringing about prayerlessness and selfish, self-centered praying, and even though it has developed into an adulterous relationship with the world that has made us the enemy of God, still He gives more grace and that is what is amazing to me is that you know he he paints this picture and says this is the reality you thought it was just a fight but you're committing spiritual adultery against me and you have wrecked relationships with others in your conflict you've even tore up your relationship with God to the point where you don't even pray to him anymore and when you do pray it's always selfish and it's always self-centered you've made yourself an enemy of God however he gives more grace How many of you are thankful that even in your failure, he gives more grace? I I love that. And it just reminds me of what, again, Paul said in Romans chapter 5. He says, where sin abounds, grace does much more, much more abound. And that's the idea of, of more here. It is, it's greater. His, his grace is greater than our need. That's what he's actually saying there. I was looking up that word more or, or greatest. And another place that it appears is in 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 13, the, the great love chapter. And he says, and now abide faith, hope, love, these three, but the greatest. That's the same word that is used back in James. But the greatest of these is love. Now, isn't it interesting that love is given to you by the grace of God? You don't develop love as a believer, not biblical love. Romans 5 and verse 5 tells us that the love of God is poured out into the heart of man by the Holy Spirit. That's an act of grace when we talk about how do we define love here say it out loud disinterested benevolence come on say it nice and loud disinterested benevolence been a long time since we've gone down that road we need to do it a little bit more because i think we're getting a little squeaky here but it is disinterested benevolence it is benevolence it is love it is kindness it's mercy it's grace that is emptied of any selfish motive of any selfish intent. You and I can't manufacture that. You can't go to a workshop and learn how to develop disinterested benevolence. That's poured out in your heart by the Holy Spirit. It's an act of grace. And what I need to resolve every conflict is to be emptied of Kurt. And you need to be emptied of yourself. That's the only way. You gotta remind yourself, I am the gas in this fire. And if I'm going to diffuse this conflict, I've got to get rid of me. I've got to do everything that I'm doing without any selfish intent, without any selfish motive at all. It's an act of God's grace. I love another place it shows up is in 1 John 4 and verse 4. You are of God, little children and have overcome them because he who is in you is greater. There's the word. Than he who is in this world. And so greater is Christ living in you as the believer by the Holy Spirit than the enemy that is living in this world today. And so in every situation, I know that God has provided all of the grace that I need to resolve this. To, to do my part in at least trying um, to make peace in Jesus' name. Okay, so that's the remedy, the grace of God. But that leads us to our final point that we're going to look at, and it's going to take a little while to, to unpackage this one, but that is our response. Our response to the remedy. We have the remedy, but now our response to that remedy, and it is verse 6. But He gives more grace Therefore, knowing that more grace is available, knowing that His grace is greater, therefore, He says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. How do you respond to the remedy? Humility. Um, You know, I can go to a doctor 
and I can have symptoms and go to the doctor and say, hey, doc, you know, listen, I'm feeling this way. This is what's been happening recently. Da, 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 da. I can lay out all of my symptoms, and the doctor can put me through a series of tests, go send me away for blood work, and he can do all of the tests, and he comes back and he says, you know what? We've, we've identified it. We know what's going on. This is the result. This is what's been going on in your body. But the good news is we have a remedy. This is what you got to eat. This is what you got to stop eating. This is how long you're going to have to exercise. These are the medications you're going to need to go on. You're going to have to make some adjustments in your lifestyle. But the good news is if you stay true to this, then it will rectify your situation. Okay? Now, I can leave the doctor's office with that remedy and say, I have a remedy. But it isn't going to do anything until I do what? humble myself and do what I have I have to do I have to humble myself under the authority of that doctor and all that he knows about my condition and I have to obey his his commands I have to obey his directions if I do then I'll I will rectify that situation if I don't I can die with the remedy in my hand. I have to humble myself to his leadership. I'm going to tell you folks, God has a remedy. It's his grace. But you can't just claim, I've got grace from the Lord and I'm going to make it. You've got to humble yourself and do everything that he tells you to do. I mean, I know that you don't want that, but I'm going to tell you, you can pray for grace for the rest of your days. You can, you can even go on a 40-day fast for God to pour out His grace on you. You can start making sacrifices and say, Lord, I'm going to lay these things aside until grace comes. You can cry out until you cannot talk anymore. But grace is only given to the humble. There's no fast track to God's power. You have to humble yourself and say, Lord, I surrender all. And that's the only way to access God's grace. You can, you can look up all the verses of grace in the Bible. You can memorize them. You can do cross-references and you can study them all, but that will not cause grace to fill your heart. Grace will only come when you humble yourself before the Lord and say, Father, I will not take matters into my hands any longer. I will do what you command me to do. Even if I don't completely understand it, I believe in you, in Jesus' name. As long as pride fills my heart, as long as it contaminates my actions, God will not provide the grace that I need. The provision's there, but he cannot give a rebellious, proud heart grace. He can't. I love how the Amplified draws out pride. In Proverbs 6, in verses 16 and 17, it says, These six things the Lord hates. Hates. Indeed, seven are repulsive to him. And the very first one, top in the list, a proud look and then he says this is what a proud look is it is the attitude that makes one overestimate oneself and discount others he says listen all that pride really is is when you consistently overestimate you and what you need you overestimate your value and what you think you are in Christ it's when you overestimate yourself while discounting everyone else when you put yourself ahead of everyone and he says I hate this it's repulsive to me when you're in the midst of a conflict and all you can do is focus upon you you then I hate that. It's repulsive to me. It, and again, he's just calling it for what it really is. And he says, I cannot give grace to that individual because all that's going to do is puff them up even more. 
And watch this. Now, this this is something, I I don't know that I've ever really thought about it, but as I was just meditating on it this afternoon, the thought occurred to me that this is not just a matter. My, My pride is not just a matter of God not giving me grace. It's worse than that. He says he resists the proud. So it's not just a matter of my pride keeping me from the grace of God, but it actually makes God resist me. He's not talking to unbelievers here, folks. He's talking to believers here. He's not talking to the unbeliever. He's talking to followers of Jesus Christ. He's saying, when my children start becoming proud, it's not only that they're not going to get my grace, I'm going to resist them. The word resist there, you're going to love this one, The word resist there, it it means that God will arrange himself to go into battle against me. It's a military term. He's saying, when when my children become full of pride, I actually will arrange my personality and all my power to come against them. Because I hate pride, especially pride when my children are acting in it. God will fight against us. Wow. I probably would, I think I can go out on a limb and tell you that maybe three or four pulpits out of a hundred would be willing to say that today. Because again, we have this romantic idea of God always being for us. And He is, but part of being for us is being against those things that are in our lives that destroy us. And so God will actually set Himself against you when pride is in your heart. I share a, a, just a really intimate moment that I had with the Lord years ago. This is when... Kathy and I were first uh, considering going into uh, a ministry called Heaven's Gates and Hell's Flames. Some of you know our story, some of you don't, but um, for two and a half years, Kathy and I traveled with a Christian drama ministry, and this would have been in the, um, uh, in the early to mid-90s. It's actually what brought us here. We, we came to do the drama here when the senior pastor had already resigned and we were asked at the end if we would put our names in um, to candidate for the church. So that's how God worked it. But, but a couple of years before that, we were, we were asked if we would um, consider traveling with them. And uh, we had to go to uh, St. Catharines, Ontario, Canada, because that's where the head office was. Um, St. Catharines is just on the other side of Niagara Falls, the, the prettier side, actually. Um, if you ever go to Niagara Falls, make sure you always go to the Canadian side because the Canadian side is so much better than the American side. But we, we actually had dinner with the president. His name was Rudy Krulik. And um, we had a, a wonderful evening with Rudy. And um, at the end of the evening, he said, you know, Kurt, Kathy, I love you guys. And we would love for you to travel with us. And I said, Rudy, listen, I, I said, drama's my background. I, I've done that. And, and I love it. And I have no problem with it. Sounds exciting. But I got to be honest, I'm a preacher. And I love preaching. And the idea of laying that aside for any length of time frightens me because, you know, I just, I, I love that gift and I, I need to develop that more. And I said, listen, I'm not asking you to change Heaven's Gates for me. I mean, rightfully so, the ministry should be the hallmark and, and should be what's up front. And I, I said, so I'm not asking you to change it. It just may not be a good fit for me because I may not be able to preach. He looked at me and he said, Kurt, he says, you're in a different church every weekend. And he said, they want you to preach because they want you to fire everybody up. They, the pastors are going to be begging you to preach every Sunday. He says, listen, I guarantee you, you're going to be preaching so much that you're going to be begging the pastors not to make you preach that weekend because you're just going to, and I said, well, that'll never happen. But, you know, that's what he said. He says, you're just, everybody's going to ask you to preach. Great. 
Five months. Never got one ask. First five months. First five months didn't preach one time. And I was dying inside. Dying. And I will never forget. It was January of, that would have probably been 94, I guess it was. We were in a little town in Oklahoma called Bixby. Bixby, Oklahoma. It's a suburb of Tulsa. And we were staying in a little um, uh, trailer that they had for guests and stuff. And, and I went into one of the bedrooms, and I was so frustrated. I was so upset. And I cried out to the Lord. I said, Lord, I know you led us to come here. I haven't preached one time. Like, and I'm just complaining, you know. And man, if there was ever a time when I felt the Lord speak to my heart, not an audible voice, but just speak to my heart. It was that day. And the Lord just spoke to my heart and said, you know why you're not preaching? No. Because every time you read the Bible, it's to find a sermon. And every time you pray, it's to have an anointing to preach the gospel. You've never read the Bible to hear what I want to say to you. You've never prayed just to know my heart. Preaching's an idol to you. And I've been frustrating your preaching until you get back to having a heart for me. And I'll tell you, that taught me so much. And what's amazing, I spent the rest of the day repenting of my sin. Next week, the doors open and never stopped preaching after that. And what I'm saying is that a lot of us will get frustrated Plans aren't, you know, uh, coming to pass. Dreams are not coming about. And we start binding the devil. And we rebuke the enemy. And we rebuke people because we think it's the enemy that's frustrating our plans. And we think it's people that are frustrating. And a lot of times, it's actually God that's frustrating because it's pride within your heart. And God says, I'm resisting your pride. And you better be thankful. That's a good thing. Because a lot of times God resists it to get us, just like he did with me, to a place where we cry out. And then God can say, it's because of the pride and the arrogance in your heart. And like I said, you ought to be thankful that there are times God resists you. Because had he not, you would have really made a mess of your life. How many of you are thankful for the times that you were determined to go ahead and God stopped it? And now you look back and say, oh, thank you, Jesus, that you stopped me from going out with her or going out with him or marrying that. Lord, it would have been a wreck. God loves you enough to stand against you every once in a while. In Jesus' name. Come on, go ahead and give him praise for that today. You know, listen... Listen to what it says there in uh, 1 Peter 5 and verse number 5. He says, Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Listen to, say this. Why don't you all say this part with me? Yes, all of you be submissive to one another. How many of us? All. <laughs> all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. Again, because God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Be submitted to one another and clothe yourself with humility. You know, the other day, or, well, I'm sorry, today, as I was looking up that word clothe, I, I thought it was going to take me somewhere else as I was just doing my word study because I thought for sure that where it was going to end up taking me as far as the Greek word is concerned was in Luke 24, 49, where he says, uh, but tarry in Jerusalem until you are clothed with power from on high. Uh, the King James says endued with power, but it's clothed with power. I thought for sure that that was where it was going to be. It wasn't. It's a totally different word there. In, in Luke 24, 49, he says, until you're endued or clothed with power from on high, it is the idea of putting on a, clo a cloak or putting on a coat. But on this one, totally different. The word there, when he says clothe with humility, it's, it's denoting a knot. Um, 
like tying together in a knot. Now, I don't know about anybody else, but there are very few things in this world that frustrate me more than when I reach down to untie my, tie, my shoes and it gets in a knot. And especially one of those knots where the more I try to pull it out, it, the tighter it gets. Am I the only one that in frustration just cut the laces completely? Like I just, I am not fooling with this one second longer because I'm going to lose my sanctification if I do, you know. And, and, and that just, that is one of those little pet peeves in my, in my life. But that's the idea. He says, I want you to become so entangled in humility, you never get out of it. I want, I want it to be like a knot because if you get into pride, I'm going to resist you. But as long as you can stay humble, I'll give you all the grace that you need. In Jesus' name. That's the humility we need to walk in. You get rid of that pride and just be humble before Him. Now, what does that humility look like? Let's go through these quick. Because he, he lays them out, and we're just going to go through them very quickly. Humility looks like submitting to God. He says, submit to God. Submit is a military term again. Bible uses a lot of military terms. And submit there was talking about aligning yourself under authority. It was a word that was given to troops when they were to submit to the authority. They were to align themselves to their general, to their captain, to their commander, and they were to um, be submitted to that authority. When we're in conflict, what are we doing? We're breaking rank and we're fighting and we're feuding with others, wanting it our way because what God has for us is not enough. God says, listen, I got all the grace you need to get through this conflict. But what you got to do is get in line, submit to me. I want you to submit to the provisions I make for you and learn to trust that what I've provided is all that you really need. I want you to submit to my word. I want you to submit to my commandments. I want you to submit to my principles. I don't care if somebody chews you out. You just bite your tongue and let me fight your battles. If you want God's grace, you've got to respond to His command by being submitted to it in Jesus' name. It also looks like resisting the devil. He says, submit to God and resist the devil. You know what I've always found interesting about this? Not that they're not two separate things, but what's cool is that I find that in one action, I'm actually doing two things. When I submit to God, I am by default resisting the devil. That all I really, really have to do is just keep myself submitted to God. And as I do, I'm automatically resisting the devil. And I love that. I was thinking last night of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Who could deny on the night that he is betrayed that the enemy is coming against him? In fact, Jesus said it in John 14 and verse 30. He, Jesus says, I will no longer talk much with you for the ruler of this world is coming. He knew this was the hour of darkness and he's coming. But listen to that last part. And he has nothing in me. He has nothing by which he can lay hold of me and drag me away. He says, yeah, I'm coming into a dark moment, but I am completely submitted to my Father in heaven. So the enemy has nothing against me. And that's what all of us should be striving for as believers, is being so submitted to God, the enemy has nothing on us. That is nothing that he can bring accusation against because we are submitted to God. And that's why in Ephesians 4, verse number 26 and 27, we're told, be angry and do not sin. Isn't that a good thing? Like, you can be angry, but not be driven by your anger and sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Don't give him any place to work in your life. Resist here is a different word than God resisting us. Resist here literally means to stand against him. And, I, and, and my mind goes to Ephesians chapter 6 where he says, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be, may be able to stand against the, the, the wicked one. And so it's just the idea that I need to keep myself 
submitted to God and in that submission to God resisting the enemy steadfast in the faith and he's this is the promise of God you do that and the enemy will flee not might flee he will flee if you submit yourself to God resisting the devil the enemy has to flee because there's nothing to do with you what can he do now a man that is completely submitted to God a woman that is completely submitted to God the enemy can't do anything against him so submit yourself and the enemy will flee and a lot of times the reason we're hampered by the enemy is because of our unwillingness to be submitted completely to God it also looks like drawing near to God he tells us to draw near to God and again there's a promise attached to this one if I draw near to the Lord what will happen he will draw near to us I love that remember the prodigal son the prodigal son started home and when the father saw him he came running after him it's that image he says you draw near to me and I'll draw near to you he made the first move on Calvary but from that point on he says you draw near to me and I will draw near to you and I love that so just as assured as we are through the Word of God that if we resist the devil he will flee I can be equally assured that when I draw near to the Lord he will draw near to me now I love the contrast here maybe I'm reading too much into this but you know after he spends some time talking about how we need to submit ourselves to God now he says draw near to God and I love that what God is saying is listen don't see me as this taskmaster I'm your father in heaven you know um, a, a lot of us we we see God as that authority figure who says jump and we ask how high <laughs> like that's that's all you ever see God as is just a lawgiver and you have to obey him there's others of you that all you want to do is celebrate his love and his mercy and his grace but never live in obedience to him both are toxic to your faith he is a heavenly father yes he is a God of authority but he is a loving father and it comes out of that relationship and that's how God wants you to see him he doesn't want you to obey him out of a sense of duty and out of a sense of obligation he wants you to obey him because you love him and because you have come to know how much he loves you and you know that in obeying him, that, that command that he's laid out was never for your destruction. It was always for your good. And even if you don't completely understand it, and even if you don't always see how it's going to work out, you've got to remember that God is disinterested of, uh, of any selfish interest himself. Everything that he's ever done towards you was because it was in your best interest. Just like you know, a parent, you know, our kids don't always understand why we said no and why we said yes and no, you can't do that yet. They didn't always understand it. Prayerfully, the older they get, they begin to understand these things. We may not always understand what God is doing, but it's always for our good in Jesus' name. And that's what he wants us to do. I need to draw near to him because he knows what I can bear and he knows what I can't bear. And I don't have anyone that can heal my broken heart but the Lord God Almighty. And I thank him that we have an authority figure, but an authority figure who loves us in Jesus' mighty name. I love what he says here in Matthew 15 and verse number 8. These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. So let us never be like the Pharisees who just draw near the Lord with our lips, but instead let us draw near with a pure heart. Like it says in Hebrews 10 and verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So we approach Him with, with 
uh, no other intent except to please him. And you're saying, like, look, look, how does this all work into conflict resolution? It is just, again, recognizing that God is dealing with my heart primarily in this conflict. And I don't have any ability to address the conflict until I know that I am dead spiritually and that I am looking at this matter in the eyes of Christ. And I can only draw near to the Lord with that. And I love it. Sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Which is a great segue into the next thing that James says. Because this humility looks like cleansing our hands and purifying our heart. Now, that's what he says in verse 8. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Now, I'm going to ask you a question. And this is not a trick question. So I'm not trying to trick you. So just answer. You should, you should all know this answer. Can you cleanse yourself from sin? No, of course not. All right. You can't purify yourself from sin. It's, it's impossible. So what's he saying? He says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. What's he saying there? I cannot save myself from my sin because my works are like a filthy rag. The Bible makes it very clear. Okay, What he's saying is, only I can save you from your sin, but you have to maintain that, um, that cleansing. Not the salvation part, but now that I've delivered it, you from it, then you have to maintain that salvation if you will. You, you can't go where you used to go. You can't do what you used to do. You can't always hang with who you used to hang with. That There's going to have to be some changes in your life because there are things that contaminate your heart, that contaminate your mind, and you cannot associate with those things any longer. That's what he's saying there. He's saying, listen, I, 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 I've set you free from it. I have saved you from your sin. I've forgiven you. But now, don't be like the dog, as we said last week, that returns to its vomit. You've got you've to just say, you know what, I, I used to hang with them and I love them still, but every time I'm with them, the conversation goes negative. Every time I'm with them, they start talking about people. And every time I watch that, it, it stirs up things in my heart. Like there's some of you, you just need to do yourself a favor and you need to turn off CNN or Fox or whatever because it fires you up. And it gets you filled with negativity. And before long, you're all political rather than realizing you're above that in Jesus Christ. You know what I'm saying? It's just you gotta know, you gotta know yourself. You gotta know the things that trigger you, the things that get you going, and say, I'm done with that. And that's what he's saying here. It makes absolutely no sense for God to give us grace when we have no desire of changing the path of destruction we're on. God says, no, no, no. You've got to change that path, then I'll pour grace on you. He says in Psalm 24, in verses 3 and 5, who may ascend into the hill of the Lord or who may stand in His holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart not lifted up his soul to an idol nor sworn deceitly he shall receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation humility also looks like lamenting and mourning I got to move through this here quick it looks like lamenting and mourning he says there in verse 9 lament and mourn and weep let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom obviously what he's talking about is repentance this is, this is the heart that is broken over sin. Um, you know, I, I was thinking this morning, just kind of meditating on the, how to best express that. And, you know, I never really thought about it in these terms. Have you ever been around that person? Maybe you are that person. But have you ever been around that person that no matter what they've done, they just want to pretend like nothing ever happened? Like they just go on these binges of the flesh 
And then they come back and they're like, hey, let's just pick up where we left off. Are you kidding me? You ever been around that person? That they, just, like it, they just ignore it and you're sitting there thinking, wait a minute, the last time I saw you, but they just pretend it never happened. Or they're the ones that just sweep it under the rug. They're the ones that just, you know, they, they will never admit their failure. They'll never say, I'm sorry. Or, or when they do, it's that very generic, I'm sorry. You know, I want to say, what exactly are you sorry for? I, I, want, I want to hear it. I, I want to know exactly what you're sorry for. Because I don't know... <laughs> if you've really given it any thought. And, and even when they do say, you know, I'm sorry, they're, they're always very careful to conveniently make sure that you know somehow it was your fault. You know, man, I'm really sorry I did that. Man. You know, it, but what you said really ticked me off. And... That's what he's talking about here. He's saying, listen, that jovial, you know, we just are in conflict. He says, no, I, you've grieved the Spirit of God in a great way here. He's saying, I want you to repent. I want you to actually weep over the spiritual adultery that you've committed. I want you to weep over the tension that you've created with other, with other believers and with other men and women. I want you to grieve over the fact that you have not prayed, and even when you've prayed, it's always been selfish and centered more on what you can get out of it more than praying for your enemies. I want you to weep over the fact that you've made yourself a friend of the world, and in that, you've made yourself an enemy of God. I want you to repent. I want you to grieve over your sin. I actually want you to acknowledge it. I want you to consider what it's doing to God, what it's done to your prayer life. I want you to consider the conflict that it has brought into the earth. And for once, would you consider what it's done to everybody else and not what it's done to you? It's a kind of repentance that you read about in 2 Corinthians 7, verses 9 through 11. This is when Paul had rebuked the Christians in the city of Corinth because of just the compromise. He says, now I'm rejoicing, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to true repentance. For you were sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow always produces repentance that leads to salvation that's never regretted. But the sorrow of the world, uh, the sorrow that the world produces death. For observe this very thing that you sorrowed in a godly manner. How did he know that they, because again, I can feel sorry for what I've done, but it might be very selfish. I'm sorry because um, I've, uh, of my reputation that has been damaged. I'm sorry because of the financial loss I've experienced. I'm sorry that I might lose my wife or my husband or my kids. You know, I'm sorry. It's all selfish. I'm sorry because I don't want to go to hell. That's all selfish. And he says that never leads to real repentance. He says godly sorrow weeps over what I've done to others and truly repents. And he says when that happens, what diligence it produces in us what clearing of ourselves, what indignation, this hatred of, of what we've done, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication in all these things. I love this. You proved yourself to be clear in this matter. Remember, the greatest preacher of repentance was John the Baptist. And he said, bring forth fruit worthy of your repentance. What he was saying is, nobody is going to get into heaven just because they say, I'm sorry. They're going to get into heaven because after that sorrow, they actually bore fruit that showed they had truly repented. That there was a life change that took place. And then he ends with this. Humble yourself in the sight of God. Just humble yourself. <laughs> and he just drives it home. I've not perfected this myself. I don't want anybody to think I have quartered the market of humility. I know I haven't. But I will tell you, it just grieves my heart when I consider the lack of humility that I see so many people possessing today with no regard to, recon uh, with regards to reconciliation. They just have 
just zero. I, I see so, and I think it's the political culture that we live in today. We, we, we've lost the ability to agree or disagree agreeably. It's just, there's this viciousness. And I just see husbands and wives digging in their heels and saying, I'm right, they're wrong, and they got to change. Just see this, this unwillingness to just humble yourself in the sight of God. Humility is just preferring others over yourself. It's just seeing the needs of others as being more important than your needs. It's the willingness to yield to them instead of insisting on your way and what you feel is right and what you feel is just. It's, it's just yielding. And we don't like that. That's why it gets really quiet here. But I'm right. <laughs> so what? <laughs> I mean, are you, are, you, are you going to let it continue just because you want to be right? You know, um, remember, chapter 4 was birthed out of chapter 3. It was born out of chapter 3, which chapter 3 deals exclusively with the untamable tongue. So it's right out of that discussion that he talks about conflict resolution. And this is what he says towards the end. Who is wise and understanding among you? Who are the wise people among us? Let them show it by their good conduct that his works are done in meekness and in wisdom. If you have bitter envy, self-seeking in your heart, do not boast and lie against the truth. Don't you dare say that you are a man of God when you're full of bitter envy and self-seeking. This wisdom does not descend from above. It's earthly, sensual, demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. But the wisdom that is from above is pure, peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy, full of fruit, uh, and good fruits, without partiality, without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. I love Paul's words. Paul just says, um, if it's at all possible, as much as depends on you, live in peace with all people. Now listen, there are just some stubborn people and they just are not gonna, they're not gonna wanna resolve conflict, we get that. But as much as depends on us, we do our best to diffuse a situation and we do it by emptying ourselves of ourselves. It's like I said to you last week, the one common denominator in every one of your conflicts is you. And so God says, let's deal with you first. Humble yourself in the sight of God and his promise, I'll lift you up. I'll get you out of that and I'll make it well in Jesus' name. That's his way of dealing with conflict. I know you all wanted like five easy steps to diffuse a situation but God says, you know what? We'll diffuse it by getting you out of yourself and being focused on how you can be a blessing to somebody else in Jesus' name. Father, help us. These are not easy because it's so much easier just to say, Lord, change them than it is for us to walk through a road of repentance looking at our own pride. Help us, Lord. And I pray that we would resolve these things in Christ's name, amen and amen. God bless you, everybody. Have a great evening. Sorry I kept you a little later. I wanted to finish it tonight. And in two weeks, we'll begin Revelation. Love you.